0: This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. It's the last of a three-part series that I've been doing with former rugby player Aidan McCullen. He's now an executive coach, a lecturer, host of the weekly podcast, The Innovation Show, and author of his new book, Undisruptible. Last week, we talked about discipline versus talent, manifestation and positive thinking, as well as his own very successful professional playing career and how that has helped shape a lot of his current thinking. Now, this week, we get into subjects like feedback, both giving it and receiving, communication, mentoring, and teaching yourself to be open to a reinvention mindset and what that really means. But we start today's show talking about failure and using the Japanese idea of kintsuki thinking. I love that term. It's
1: beautiful, isn't it? The, and just for the benefit of the audience, it's this art, in Japanese art, it, it literally means kin golden and zugi is joinery and it's when you see like a smashed bowl and it's got the cracks celebrated and i just think it's a lovely idea of embracing the mistakes that you've made and getting on with it from just taking the lesson from the mistakes and it's really interesting because the kintsugi thinking is there's really two different types of failure there's the failure that you have when you're learning something new which is totally normal And then there's a failure from doing something that's routine that you shouldn't do. So like this is sound really harsh. But when I was coaching, I coached for a very brief period after I finished rugby. And one of the things I I used to say was, I don't know where I got this line, but how many newborns? Is it okay for a midwife to drop? (laughs) Zero, right? Because you kind of gone, they are trained to the nth degree in this so when you're doing a drill and somebody and there's no opposition in say rugby there's no excuse to drop the ball it just means that you're not present and you're not focusing you're, you're not paying attention or joking mm-hmm. around and what i always t- kind of thought was that wasn't the time to to do that even though i probably did it a lot when i was a player and but if, if it's like okay we're going to introduce a new move and then you introduce new move and, and literally the player's brains are learning that new move. So they have to create neural pathway of that new move. That's different because they're learning and they're going to make mistakes. And then you're encouraging, you're kind of going, okay, let's go again. But if if there was a player and this happened to me when I was coaching a player and he kept dropping the ball on first receiver when he was the first receiver. And I'd say to him. I'd pull him aside and go, I haven't seen you come to training early or staying late practicing that. Have you practiced during the week? And you could see in his eyes, in his eyes he hadn't. So I then I go, okay, will you go into the gym until you're ready to start doing that practice and stop messing up the training practice? So I was very strict in that respect. But I didn't have that type of character back in my early day. And I was very hard on myself. Like I used to kick the crap out of myself about failures and mistakes and having a bad game and that typical thing that most people have about you're man of the match but you make one mistake and you're kind of going yeah but i shouldn't have done that and i'm very interested in that ben because what the more i've learned about the brain is that stems back to only 200,000 years ago we lived in caves and the slightest little noise you would assume first it was a saber tooth tiger about to bite your head off rather than actually, oh no, it's just a trickle of water down the cave. That's inherent in our brain, this negativity bias. And it you know, you do 99 good things and one thing wrong and you focus on the wrong thing. People do this listening who are in business on a feedback review. <laughs> the, guy, the boss is like, you're, you're magnificent here. You nailed it. You got all your things. If there's one place you could work, maybe it's with your communication skills. And then you come and go, my communication skills suck. And uh, I was a little bit like that in sport. And I would wonder, would that have served me better if I was a bit more, okay, what can I do about it, learn from it, move on, instead of dwell on it, because I dwelled on it. And it's just a waste of energy dwelling on things.
0: And you would have had it even, well, you'd have it supersized now in the modern era with social media, uh, because what you just said explains the way that a lot of people will look at social media you've got a photo of you up and 10 people say it's are you looking great and you know and then one refers to it in a negative way you're holding on to that right and you can't let go of it yeah i i see it even so like it doesn't happen often but the
1: odd time and and i uh, i have a an article i write every week i call it the thursday thought and it's it's funny because it's exactly like sport to me like a few people have asked me about writing you've written a book you know what it's like and they go oh what was the process like and I was like well it's just going to the gym but it was a different thing in the gym and that was the same for me with this Thursday I thought I haven't missed a week in six years and just keep showing up until they'll pick me <laughs> and uh, but I I've very rarely write so six years an article every week whatever that's 300 odd articles and once I think somebody left a negative review and it bugged me for days afterwards. And it was it was probably more the principle of this person was an artist. And they went, I've been reading your articles for a long time, really loved them. This one is way off the mark, right. And, and my point to that person was, well, if you're an artist, then you should have appreciated the art. In a positive way, instead of being the first time you you pipe up and say something is when something's not right. I said if I walked into your gallery and it was like, "I've been buying your art for years, but this piece is a piece of crap," <laughs> <laughs> and they and they went off on one then. And I actually, it was it wasn't so much the criticism, which I don't which I don't mind because actually the whole idea is Thursday thought it's to, it's designed to instill thinking. It was actually the principle that she was an artist and that she was being critical and then she wasn't able to accept me giving her uh, responsible feedback. <laughs> you know, so that was interesting. And, and I think one of the worst things I can see is when former players start criticizing current players and you're kind of going, yeah, man, if you know empathy, like, you know what that's like, don't feed the beast and don't pour fuel on the fire. Like it's, you're just being part of the problem. Then just stop it. And you know, that person's a human and there's stuff going on in their lives, you'll never know what's going on. So don't, don't start pouring fuel. People have bad games. They go through bad periods of play. And if you stick with them, they'll come through it. And sometimes if you don't stick with them, they won't. So what do you want to be to people?
0: If I drop into the business world, the stuff I often see that, that you've just mentioned that could be done better is feedback in, in all its different forms and receiving and giving criticism. Do you see that quite a lot in the work that you do? Yeah, hugely. Like the,
1: I think the feedback system is wrong. Like you think about a feedback.
0: Firstly, managers
1: don't like to do it. They don't know how to do it. They're not trained in how to do it. And then what they're doing essentially is going, I'm going to try and remember everything you did over the past year that I haven't done any preparation for. And then some managers are going to go, oh, we've got to keep them hungry. We better throw in a negative there, here or there. And the person's like, devastated and like you said about those younger players we're, we're just kids who are taller less hair <laughs> some hairier in some places but that doesn't go away that that fear of criticism and sometimes we're not good at giving feedback because we don't want to hear it back and i think there's a huge shift needed in the business world from one of management which feels often like judgment to one of coaching and i love the the origin of the word, word coach is fascinating. It, it comes from the, the word stagecoach. So if you think of a stagecoach, do you remember, like, I always think of Little House of the Prairie or these old westerns, and it's like the stagecoach being chased by the it, it engines, you know, those old movies. And a stagecoach brings somebody from point A to point B. And that's where the term coach comes from, because it's about bringing somebody from point A to point B. And I think that that is forgotten about in a leadership role because there's been an evolution from management to leadership. You don't really need to sit over people and make sure they do something anymore if they have a compelling purpose to do that. And we're still stuck in that archaic mindset about management from the industrial revolution where people were literally minions in uniforms doing what they were told. And you sat and you tried to milk as much productivity out of them as possible to a world of leadership, which is actually a totally different role that people aren't even prepared for or educated for, which is storytelling, repeating the purpose, helping them through times of Kintsugi, of of those negative moments. So a leader has really become a coach. And I would say in the leadership community, there's probably 0.001% of people practicing that. And that's a huge, huge change that's happening and will be defined by leaders will define that in the future. And by the way, and I'll say this, I really do believe this. I think it's why so many female leaders are fantastic leaders because it's a different way of thinking. It's if you go back again, 200,000 years ago in the caves, the man and the woman the male and the female played a very different role man would go and hunt and do that type of work well the woman would actually mind the tribe and she would be she would be interested in the peace of the tribe and ben getting on with aiden because ben you know stole some of aiden's meat last night and they're having a a bit of strife and they kind of peacemake it because it could have spelled the death of her child if there was no peace in the camp so the tribe sanctity and union and getting on together and all those kind of things became really important and that's a really important leadership sh- skill in this world of collaboration so i think there's there's huge changes in in the world and to summarize it leaders are need to be more coaches to be coaching people through feedback one of the things i love is um the idea of like I, there's a guy called Benjamin Zander. You've probably read his book, The Art of Positivity. He's an he's amazing uh, orchestra. He's an orchestra conductor, an amazing TED talk. But he has this thing called with, with his students. He saw the anxiety the students had about the feeling of the exams so much so that they were totally out of being present in the exercises. So in, in the classroom, so he started off each year by giving them an A. So they started with an A. And what he did was magnificent. He'd say, I want you to write a hundred word essay or so, a small essay to say, what did you do in 12 months time to maintain your A? And then they created an accountability for themselves. And then they'd revisit that. And then if you think about doing that in an organization, you tap in with people every so often you go, I'm just checking in with you, Ben, how are you getting on? with your goals to maintain your A at the end of the year. And the A in, in the organization could be a, a raise, you know, your compensation, or it could be actually further you up the organization or whatever it might be, you gain back holidays, whatever way you're rewarded. But that, that, I think that's beautiful because people are way more critical of themselves. So you just sit down and you kind of go, how are you getting on versus your goals? And that's a very much a coaching approach to things. And I think that's why, Exact coaches are an essential part of anybody like that constant feedback, the mentorship from somebody on a regular basis who isn't too overly or emotionally
0: invested is key to being successful in any realm. There's so much in all of that. And when you started talking about the industrial revolution and then moving through now to, to, to what we're trying to do there's three books in my head there's your book undisruptible which we'll have links to in this in the show notes that has lots of examples around all of this and then there's also owen eastwood's book belonging and he would talk about before the industrial revolution where we were in the villages and we were in the tribes and there's another book great book called tribe where they say you know that's the job then was to to have create harmony um get make sure everyone's working together um keep everyone safe and and we're we're hopefully moving back round to that now because that, that factory phase, that industrial revolution where it was about outcome and, and product, and then we're now in this phase perhaps where there was a, a moment where it, it if you sacrifice people along the way to achieving your, your goal, well, that's okay. I think it's probably not okay now. So I could pick a lot out from that. The interesting thing, I, I thought about this actually, as a coach,
1: you have a person for a sliver of their life, right? So the you have an immense responsibility, because things you do during that sliver of their life actually have a a huge impact later on in their life. And I know some examples that I can see now, one of the biggest benefits I had from not being that talented and being disciplined is that now, like we discussed before, I'm able to do training myself I'm able to pick up a diet and put it down and just go yeah I'll try that one and t- then try this other one and what I find with so many sports people is when the coach is over autocratic and actually does all the work for them they become kind of it's like it's like doing everything for a kid you're not really mm-hmm. doing everything for the kid you're actually ill preparing them for the future when they're out there on their own and and I constantly I, we talked about this I, I wreck my kids heads all the time thinking, well <laughs> If you don't learn how to do that, someday you're going to be in your apartment. If you're lucky, actually, you probably won't have an apartment because you don't know how to work properly. <laughs> and, and your place is going to be a total dump because you don't know how to fill the dishwasher. And uh, so it, I think the same thing in sports, that if you overly hold the hands of the players, when they get out into the real world, firstly in, the, in business, because it doesn't last forever and we're not paid that well, that we don't have to work again then you actually don't even know the skills that you have. And then, like, one of the things people don't see is when you retire, you're actually held hostage to training. doesn't mean you're fit for the rest of your life. You're actually a hostage to those injuries and that overuse and abuse of your body that you've done. So you need to actually be minding yourself on an ongoing basis. And, you know, I, I think that, like, we have access to gyms, uh, uh, and I'll say the company called Iconic Gyms here in Dublin, they give access to all the former players. And it's it's a blessing. But I I know in the gym I use I'm the only player in there because the a lot of the players haven't formulated the mindset and the skill set and the discipline to go and bring it on afterwards. And then they suffer heart problems and health problems and obesity and diabetes, whatever the list goes on. And, uh, I think that's a huge, the the, the coach actually has a responsibility there, but I know at the same time, what it's like to be a coach is that you're measured on your instant results. You're not measured on how that life, that person goes on beyond you. But I think that's another shift in the world of coaching or leadership that if you see actually every interaction as a, an opportunity to positively
0: impact the life of somebody it changes what coaching is for you. It's a really interesting question, question that you said there about whether coaches get judged on purely on, they. I mean, they do get judged purely on outcome by many people, but internally for themselves, I think as you go on a journey, as you get more experienced, you do put more of a priority in, on on actually, if you get the best out of the individuals and you look after them, you help them become their best versions and you care about them, success is inevitable. And that's how... A lot of experienced coaches, you know, the, the Ferguson's and the Wenger's, they weren't, they didn't get their, their job at Arsenal or their job at United till in their late 40s. And so they were vastly experienced when they got into those roles. And I think they were, that protected them, that insulated them, that gave them that, their own form of and sheaf that allowed them to just be secure in what they were doing was going to work out okay and not be so concerned about the result on the Saturday. And I think that, that made quite a, diff, a difference to them. And also when you were talking about your younger, the younger Aiden, I kind of had in my head that the best coach for you back then would have been your current, the current Aiden. <laughs> and he would have but he would have known there would be certain mistakes that you would have made that he the older Aiden is going to help you avoid. And there'll be other ones that he's not going to help you avoid. You've got to make those mistakes yourself to learn from. And that's the art science of coaching, of mentoring, I I suppose. Yeah, and
1: I think you, you make a, a valuable point. I I mean, one of the things that I wish I, and I eventually got it, man. And actually, when once I got this, I actually started, I, I got capped, was I was looking at the players that were ahead of me and I was trying to emulate what they did. And I had a great chat at the time with a guy in Leinster, a guy called Al Gaffney, who went on to coach uh, Munster. And um, he, did he coach Australia as well? He Al did, Gaffney? yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, great coach. And Al said, you need to decide what you're good at. And it was a really huge moment for me to kind of go, okay, well, I'll stop trying to do a bit of that and a bit of that and be like a master of none. And I'll try and be a master of one. And I went to the fitness coach and I said to him, I want to be able to run <laughs> really fast for like, cause I wasn't that fast. And I was like, I want to be able to rerun really fast for like 15 or 20 meters and get an offload away. And he's like, he's looking and this, the the beauty of this, the opportunity was and the serendipity was he had actually just studied in America and he'd learn a lot of NFL stuff and he'd no canvas to practice them on. And I said, some of that stuff I can do if, if it's useful. So then I just became his canvas. So we started practicing stuff that nobody else in the team was doing. And again, that was one of those moments that it was that sliding door moment where that work that I did with him. Enabled me to do exactly that: break a tackle, try and draw in two players, and get it pass away, which was really useful, as you know, in stuff like sevens because you create space. But it's why Toulouse picked me. Was that pure one thing? Was I, I was I able to do? And then you know, I didn't work right and those type of things, which are basics. But it was a real uh, interesting thing. And why I say that in respect to what you said is, what I stopped doing was trying to compete with the other players, and I started to compete with myself and go how better was I this week than last week? And I did that without having the language to be able to articulate that. I know how to say that now, but then I didn't. And it's kind of like your point. You need this self-awareness. You need a word in your ear from somebody who's wiser than you, like Al in that respect. And then you need help and you need to be willing to ask for the help. That's not a weakness. And back to something you said earlier on about the, the players like looking for psychological help that often sounds like actually there's something wrong with me. And I get the same thing because I, I do executive coaching with a few leaders and oftentimes they tell me when the first time somebody said to them, or a colleague or maybe their, their boss that they report to said, you know, you should explore executive coaching. They look at them with this kind of look of, do you think I'm weak? And I think the fr- framing of that question could be reframed a little better and go, do you want to be better? Because that's a better question. Like, do you want to be a better version of what you are? And everybody will go, yeah, instead of you need an executive coach. So having that person to be able to share and not get overly emotionally involved is gold for you. And, and that's gold for any period of life. And everybody needs that. Every single one of us needs that because you're totally unaware of your behaviors because they're like water around a fish. You don't even know they're there.
0: That brings me around to something that I'd like to, pick you up on that you mentioned briefly in part one of our chat that you said that you had a brilliant mentor. Who were they and and why were they so good? So I, I suppose I had a couple of different uh I wouldn't say
1: I, I had a couple of different people across my time who just said a positive word. We talked about this, the impact of that on a child. A positive word in their ear to go, keep going, you're doing well, is gold. Like the there's a thing called the Pygmalion effect where you encourage the child and the child sees themselves as this better version. And then they become the better version of their mild It's self-fulfilling prophecy essentially, but there's an opposite thing called the Gollum effect. And the Gollum effect is when you tell the child, they're not very good or you'll never amount to anything. And, you know, all this kind of stuff has a totally negative effect and they become this kind of worse version of what they possibly could be. And I often think about that when you see somebody who who's just you see them years later or decades later and you go, oh, my God, I don't even recognize this person. And they've just been through hell or they've internally been through some type of mental storm and it's just they wear it on their face. But the time you're talking about, actually was that book I mentioned, Steve Biddulph's book Raising Boys. And I there's a guy and, and by the way, he was manager of Ireland. Guy called Mick Carney. So he was the manager through the Joe Schmidt period and into that. Andy Farrell brought him back in actually. But all the players will tell you like Mick is an amazing man for just looking out for the human side of players and their future selves. So for example, he will say to players, don't be going buying yourself a Maserati. Don't be going, you know, flashing your money around. Pay off your mortgage. Because if you can pay off your mortgage by the time you retire from rugby, you will be able to go and start at the bottom of a ladder and actually select the industry rather than actually be having golden handcuffs where you have to go into a role that you don't really need or you don't really want to do. And then the impact on your life at those moments. So that, that's the kind of character Mick is. Mick is a very successful entrepreneur as well. He, I first met him, he was president of my club, Lansdowne, my rugby club, and he i met him there and then he he brought snap printing into ireland from australia he brought in a massive franchise called home instead just serial amazing entrepreneur but very much into giving back and i told i said this to you before i met him by chance and he said to me you're always reading some crap what are you reading i said this book raising boys he gives, give me the nugget. I said about this 13 year old period of a child, a boy's life where they start to look outward. And what I didn't say to you there was the role of the parent there is to actually recruit a mentor. So say you and I, you were uncle Ben and I knew you were the right person to talk to Josh or Jake. I'd go, Ben, look, for example, Josh is 16. He wants to get a motorbike. And we're better off getting him some beat up car. So he, because motorbikes are nuts and, it, and he just has it this in his head. He's seen some movie on TV and he wants to imitate that person. So then Ben goes, Josh, what, I got tickets to the game. Want to come to the game with me? And Josh goes, Oh, all right. Uh, as long as we can go for <laughs> a milkshake afterwards or whatever. I'm really embellishing this story, Manny. That was <laughs> yeah, <no, it's> good. <laughs> so you go along and then. Because we've had the conversation in the background, you go, eh, you know, in passing, not giving it much attention that he can see. You kind of go, your dad tell me you want to uh, get a motorbike. And Josh like, yeah, motorbikes are cool. Yeah, leather jackets, helmets. And you're like, going, yeah, but do you want to have a girlfriend? Yeah. Well, pff, girls prefer cars. Really? Yeah. I'm just saying. Then Josh comes home. <laughs> and Josh goes, yeah. I kind of made up my mind actually. I don't think a car is a great idea. And then I'm like, oh, that's a great decision made by you entirely, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, th- th- it says that in the Steve Bidoff b- book. I've totally paraphrased, obviously, but that I mentioned this to Mick, and he goes, "Do you have a mentor?" And I said, "No." And he goes, "Well, I actually have a slot because I've." at the time there's a, a guy called Dunaco Callahan and Donalco was a player in Ireland he had just decided to leave Munster at the time to go to Worcester and Mick was mentoring him so I, Mick had a slot and he said do you want to do it and I said yeah and he goes okay well two conditions you do what i say when i say it so when i give you tasks to do you follow through and two is that you show up on time when we're doing, when we're meeting and that and he's still my mentor that's whatever, eight years. Um, I've been late a couple of times, <laughs> but he's, he's stuck by me. But he's been through with me through amazing things and, and constantly question like even I, I'll send him, you know, when you publish, I'll send him this, he'll laugh at this, like the stuff I've said to him that he's just like, on you, you're nuts, man. <laughs> like I was saying about, I remember when I started, because I do like a lot of keynotes now and uh, workshops. And I started saying to him, I'm like in my goals, I'd have do three uh, talks a year and he's kind of going, why do you want to be doing the talks? And I go, well, one day I'll be paid for the talks. And he'd kind of, he'd, he'd kind of tolerate that as a goal and go, okay, let's see. And, uh, what I was really doing was there was the bottom of the S curve stuff that we talk about in the book is just trying things out when there was no risk. So I was speaking at these events, figuring out what worked for people and what resonated with people and then actually building that muscle and i think that's really useful there's actually a thing i think seinfeld did this or might be in chris rock the comedians they used to go to like these total dive comedy bars and practice their routines before they'd go to the vegas big thing because they were actually what they're doing was using an mvp minimal viable product of their of their routine and going well, nobody laughed at that I'll strike that off the list and I actually used that approach Ben for the book because with the keynotes I was doing I was testing themes ah, from the book okay. live yeah and then I'd ask people afterwards who'd come up and kind of go I love what you're talking kind of go, what resonated with you and people go oh, I really loved this specific element and I go okay and, I, and sometimes I was surprised and then I left them in the book so it was kind of constantly practicing that book before it actually became a book and what what worked. And that's the same with the, the Thursday Thought, the blog every week. Some of the themes I tested there and sometimes stuff would go nuts. It would go viral and you kind of go, I didn't expect that. I actually, in my mind, I thought this would have, but I'd actually practiced with an audience and uh,
0: found what worked and what didn't. Which is something you talk about in the book with the, the kind of the thought that was it Be- Jeff Bezos that had that always have the day one, not the day two mentality.
1: Yeah, day, day one, he, he, like Jeff Bezos with his um, letters to shareholders are magnificent. They're they're just so well thought out. And he, he really does prime the shareholder to think long, stay with us. Things are going to get better. Amazon's the best place, place to fail. All these kind of messages are infused in there. But he talks about staying in day one. And I think this is really valuable for any of your audience who are playing sport or in business is that day one is when you're it's the beginner's mindset you're constantly learning you're open to new things you're not you mentioned myelination um, when the brain kind of figures a way out of doing something it becomes a sealed pattern of thinking you're aware of that you're questioning that and you're constantly in this startup mentality and if you think about why when you achieve some period of success when you get to the top of a ladder or the top of an S curve, you usually batten down the hatches and become defensive. And in defensive mindset, you can't absorb newer information because your energy has been deployed elsewhere. While in a in a growth mindset, or a day one mindset, you're constantly open to new options, opportunities and threats. And it's almost like you're not myelinated, it's not it's not sealed way of thinking. And I think that's just a a beautiful way to think about things in any respect Uh, is just constantly open. I I even talk about this in my workshops that when somebody new or joins your organization, what is actually happening inside their brain. And this is, you experience this when you go on holidays to a new area is that you'll go, you'll notice the beauty of the area. You'll notice the coffee shops and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, you could live in the most beautiful place in the world and never visit any of the coffee shops or notice the beauty of that area. Be- after a while, you'll notice when you first maybe rent an apartment there or buy a place, but then it'll become normal. And what happens is the dopamine in your brain, that the equivalent of cocaine for the brain stops pumping, stops coursing through the neurochemical stops coursing through your brain. And when that hap- when that stops in that respect, you're not open to new things and you don't notice them as much and you don't learn as much. So dopamine being coursing through your veins and through your brain is actually really important because you actually start picking up stuff. And I say, when you hire a new person, usually they're onboarded to your way of the way things are done around here. Well, I actually suggest what if you did a thing called, I call reverse onboarding, where you say to them, in six weeks, I'd like you to, rep- to present to the senior team and see what we're not seeing anymore. What practices are we doing that are no longer serving us? Are you seeing some inefficiencies? Can you bring things from where you've just come from your organization into our organization? Can you question things? And you give them permission to do that because they won't do it otherwise because they'll go, well, I kind of need to survive here. Back to the tribe mentality, I need to fit in. So I need to do things and speak the way people think around here and then you just create another minion. So I think that th- that goes back to the day one principle of of just always being open to threats and possibilities.
0: That reinvention mindset kind of permeates a lot of your a lot of your book Walt Disney's career, Kodak versus Fuji. Those those stories, do they give you clues on how to innovate?
1: Yeah, like the I, it's interesting actually i interviewed the guy only last week uh, the guy who invented the kodak camera and it was really interesting what he said because because he hasn't written a book yet his name is steve Sasson. he, he invented it in the 70s so they they were magnificent innovators but back to your point about myelination they'd figured out a way that worked once they figured out a way that worked everything was reliant on that compensation people down the hallway who they were best friends with who they'd grown up in the organization who's you know they went for meals together with the jeweler's wives at the weekend and a change in the business model away from film for kodak meant huge upset to that and the, the business was built around and this is really interesting because it, it was a billion dollar business like it's, it's around hundreds of years and it was like the stalwart in in new york in in, in new jersey where the Rochester, where the where the building was, and people getting a job there was like they'd won the lottery. So, one of the principles the founder had was looking after people. So, one of the things that had been myelinated or had been actually a stuck mindset with people was that if we change the business model, we're going to have to lose loads of people. We have to change the entire business. We have to change the culture. We have to change compensation. And they didn't want to take that on. They didn't want to take on that huge upset that happens when anytime you jump to a new curve, when anytime you take on something new, it's going to be pain. It's always messy in that middle from one jump from one place to the next. Always messy. It has to be by its very nature. You're going from order to chaos, but it always goes back to order again. It's like the waves we talked about before. You're in the trough. It's chaos. It's all over the place. You get back to the the crest yes you've made it you're in order but know that there's a chaos ahead and prepare for it and the difference was you think about what Fuji did so Fujifilm first were not a threat for a long time Kodak believed there's no way Americans are going to buy from a Japanese firm and of course the world changed it was the onset of globalization and of course they did it because they were cheaper and it was there was loads of different options for film but then Fuji had a a near death experience, if you call that. So there was this silver crisis in the seventies, where and silver was a core component of film. And what happened was two members of one of the wealthiest families in America start to have a coup and started buy up the world's supply of silver and created this kind of false uh, scarcity, and the price went up tenfold. And all of a sudden, people start to look at digital and. What happened after the crisis actually defined the the fate of both companies. It's kind of like COVID actually for a lot of people, we all got a little slap on our knuckles to go, have you adapted your business? How's your mindset? And if you weren't, and you think things are going to go back to normal, they don't. This story actually tells that tale. So Kodak after the crisis, they were number one. They went, Oh, thank God the crisis is over when the silver price went back to normal and they just went back to normal. And They got a little taste of digital in the future, but Fujifilm, the CEO at the time, was positively paranoid, if you call it that, about a future without film where it was no longer needed. And he started to aggressively invest in that future. He started to pull back revenues from places that were no longer were overly invested in film. And he started to reinvest. He started to open these digital booths all across America, and he started to pull people of roles that they were doing that were sinking they were top of the s curve businesses and put them into different places and the example i know you love and and i do as well was think about somebody who's working in a lab who's perfecting processes in filmmaking and they're asked what else can we do with these capabilities we've mastered what what are we good at here that we can use elsewhere and some team of bright sparks decide actually you know what some of the core components of film are collagen the understanding of anti-aging effects Mm -hmm. antioxidants that are all core to the film not fading once it's been developed what if and and this is the key somebody listened to this what would have sounded like a crazy what if what if we redeploy those capabilities and point them at beauty and healthcare? So, they created a brand called Astolift. And it's got this really subtle tip of the hat to its past. It goes, Astolift gives you photogenic beauty. And it's just a beautiful story, man, because you had people who were working in these labs all of a sudden working in healthcare. Fujifilm, people think it's gone. It was that little, those little green boxes for those old enough who remember the, the brand. They're now a healthcare company, they work in nanotechnology. They've even released their own COVID vaccine. Like they're an amazing company that just saw the reality of what was coming and made decisions that were difficult because that story I just told overlooks the messy middle, which was closures of factories, letting people go, all the pain that came with that and the stress for the leaders at the time, because one leader handed the button over to another during that period of time. And uh, it's just amazing. Like the, the CEO at the time, Shigataka Komori was his name. He said, beware of any mountain because it often conceals a treacherous valley. And that goes back to exactly what you said about day one and day two. Day two is when the company's really successful, but at the, at the top of the mountain. And sometimes your ego gets hold of you at the top of the mountain and you think you're invincible and there's a trough or a valley soon nearby.
0: Aidan, you've shared so much advice across the episodes, and again, I'd implore everyone listening to buy your book, Undisruptible, and a uh, link's going to be in the show notes, and listen to your podcast that will also be linked in there. But if we could perhaps end with one piece of advice or perhaps a quote that you'd like to leave the listeners with.
1: I think I'll, I'll use the quote, actually, I read in the book, I mentioned in the book is... is when the winds of change blow, some people build walls and some people build windmills. Mm-hmm. Because I think that quote is so relevant for the times we're in, the, the headwinds we're facing of change. They're only going to get faster. We talked about exponential change, the speed of change. It's only going to get faster. And having a mindset that's going, I am going to, when the winds blow, I'll build a windmill to harness those, winds of change versus a wall to try and block them out, applies to so many different parts of life It applies to your mindset, it applies to how you react when some crisis will emerge, because it always will. And, you know, you know, man, those blue zones in the earth where people are living longer, what they found with a lot of those people is it's not just what they're eating or their lifestyle, it's their mentality towards change and regrets and things they've held on to over their lives letting go of those and not being weighed down and because the body keeps the score of what's going on in the inside and i don't just mean in your organs i mean your brain and how you perceive things and if you can be more flexible about things and also the other thing i'd say is i and i'll go back to my kids that one of the, the beautiful things josh said to me one day i was trying to explain to him how what you give out to the world you get back and he is a batman fan i mentioned about batman <laughs> yeah. and, and uh and joker he'll probably listen to this in 10 years and go i can't believe you embarrassed me said, I was a, i'm like batman's cool at any age so he said to me oh so i get it it's just like echolocation with a bat a bat gives off a signal and receives the signal back because i was trying to explain the idea of the law of vibration that the energy you give out to the world actually you get back and then it becomes the construction of your world so if you just go out of your way a little bit to go well i'll do something decent for somebody I don't have to but i will that something will either not happen that was maybe destined to happen in your life that was maybe not positive or something positive will come out of the blue and people will go "Jeez, you're so lucky And things just happen for you and you kind of go maybe
0: The law of vibration isn't a bad way to finish this three-part chat. Of course, you can't guarantee anything good automatically comes to you after doing something positive for others. And that's not really the point of a genuinely communal act. But having that mindset, it has those ripples anyway. Doing something for someone else because it helps them or guides them or maybe just nudges them away from a bad habit is a, a lot of what a leader, a coach, a teacher, a mentor, or even a friend should be doing on a daily basis. I see that as a fundamental part of what I do and how I want to behave. This is often the informal unstructured stuff. You know, a text to ask how someone's going, a conversation on the walk from a changing room to a pitch or around the dinner table. Curiosity meets community. It's not all about personal best in the gym, their GPS statistics from the game before or their skinfold measurements. No, it's the stuff underneath that which can really make the difference. So like Aiden, be curious to the people you work with, work over and under with to see where you can help in any way. Reach out to them first. Be the pebble, not the ripple. As ever, all the details to Anything we have ever mentioned on this show and more will be found in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast, as well as links to all the previous shows from this series and the first on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm always really thankful for all the great messages I receive on social media, via email, and I'd, I'd have a small ask for you. I'd love those to also come through the reviews we get on Apple Podcasts. Simply find the podcast on the app and scroll down the page until you see write a review and tap to rate. By doing those two things, you'll help the show appear in the podcast charts, enabling even more people to find out about the show and discover these great conversations. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next Wednesday.